We don't even have kids from fourth grade and up in here today. We have them all the way down to, I thought it was kindergarten, but is it even a little bit younger? Wow, you pre-K kids, Elise, Simon, can you do this? Can you listen to a whole sermon? Simon's mad at me because I took this ball out of his hands already to make sure that he wasn't tempted to bounce it. I love you, Simon. Anyway, this is going to be a little bit shorter, and I'm going to try and be a little more animated to keep the attention of the little ones, and if anybody makes some noise or some fart sounds or some hiccups, it's fine. It's a family Christmas Sunday together. Okay. So let's press into this. I'm going to try and preach those words to you. I'll set it up this way. If you haven't noticed, we live in, we are sent to what they're calling a post-Christian context or a post-Christian culture. We're called to love and to live in and to herald the gospel in a, a city, a place that wants to be done with the Christian gospel. We were Christians before, but we don't want to be anymore. That's basically the lay of the land that that you and I are trying to plant a strong church in. It makes our work really interesting and really complicated, really. And it really gets interesting at Christmas time because our culture would prefer to remove Christ from the whole Christmas thing, to separate those two things. So I think you've noticed that Merry Christmas has been replaced with Happy Holidays, right? So in conversations, you'll hear more Happy Holidays and less Merry Christmas. I don't know if you've noticed that. It's interesting because holiday comes from Holy Day, and the whole reason that Christmas is set apart as something special is the holiness of what God has done in sending a Savior. So I'm good with holiday. I'm good with Christmas. Christmas cheer is holiday spirit. If you listen to the radio, you'll notice the proportion of songs that don't mention Christ has increased, and the proportion that do has decreased. Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, yes. Oh, holy night, no. I've been to two holiday parties this Christmas. One was at my day job where I work, and it was Kelly's that they brought in to cater it with no french fries. How do you have Kelly's Katie a Christmas party and not have any french fries? I was expecting bags. No french fries. The other was at a home just around the corner. A friend of Grace and I's had their home open and we were spending some time with people from Melrose. I stood right by the dessert table. Do you know what a dessert table is? People come to Christmas parties and they come with all their best desserts and they put them all on one table. So I had all these wonderful conversations within six inches of the dessert table. In neither of those Christmas parties, holy day parties, was anything mentioned, not a word about Christ. But then you walk into a church like ours and it's weird because there's a hundred plus people in here today who are actually excited about the Christ part of Christmas. We're building our lives and our church centered around this, this baby who was born in this manger at this time. We love Advent, rewalking the steps of 
the appearing of Jesus. When we wake up on Christmas morning, we don't go, woo, presents. We go, woo, Jesus. This is like the day that we celebrate salvation, freedom, life, hope. That's the real joy that we have in Christmas. Why is this true? Why? How? What is it that would make somebody move from apathetic toward Jesus or antagonistic toward Jesus to all in on Jesus? How does that happen? This is the question we've been asking in all these sermons this Christmas season. How does this salvation work? We've been asking this question because the Gospels are very clear that Christmas primarily, foundationally, is about the coming of Christ to save sinners. Here's how God spoke these words to Joseph. Keep going back. Did we lose it? Jess, that's my bad if we lost it. Go back one more. Okay, it's not there. You'll have to trust me. These words are in the Bible. Joseph, don't be afraid. Mary will bear a son, and you have to give him the name Jesus, which means God saves, because he will save his people from their sins. We read that verse of Scripture together, and we're like, wow, if that's what Christmas is about, how does this salvation actually happen? If that's true, Jesus came to save sinners, how does a Bostonian like you or me come to believe that to be true, to experience that grace? So we went to the Bible, and we've been mining specifically the biblical doctrines of God's grace to us. The first thing we established was our desperate need, and we said, we can't save ourselves. We are so broken morally, we are in such bondage, our wills, that we're never going to want God, love God, trust God, believe God, follow God. We are not good people who just need a pep talk. We are not neutral people who just need moral instruction. We're not sick people who just need a little bit of medicine to get better. We are dead people who need to be brought back to life through a miracle of God's grace. That's who we are. And then we hit on, the only way this happens is through the Father's unconditional love. And we were blown away by the thought that God has elected us and adopted us, not because we deserved it, but because he set his affections on us and said, you will be mine. Whoa. And then we said, we moved to the, the doctrine of the perfect, particular, definite atonement of Christ for our sins. That Jesus didn't just come, but he lived for us, and he died for us, and he rose for us, and he lives for us now. And that salvation is ours. From before there was time, he set his affections on us, and he accomplished that salvation for us through the cross and the empty tomb. Boom! We got excited about that. Today we move to the last doctrine of grace, which is the application of these truths. How does that gospel land in real time in your life. And here's the theological way we talk about this doctrine. We talk about it as being irresistible grace. God visits us with irresistible grace. All right, let's be careful with this word irresistible. Oh, sorry, I faked you out, Jess. Go back. There we go. Let's be careful with this word irresistible. 
what we don't want to communicate to you here is that God somehow saves you against your will. All right, we've got a bunch of super little athletes in this church, right? If you haven't seen Timmy play basketball or Henry play basketball or Caleb play soccer, uh, you've got to see these kids fly around those fields. Who's been to a youth sports game where the kid is just couldn't wait to get there? He's into it. He or she is serious. They got black eye black, and they love being there. Who has been to the youth sport games when you know that the kid wants no part of being on that field? Have you seen that before? You have, right? Mom and dad said, you're playing soccer this year. You need the exercise. You need to learn what it's like to be on a team and listen to a coach. And the kid just does not want to be there. And they grow up and they spite their parents for that season of their life where they had to play that sport. Have you seen this before? So one of my children is in the corral at school, and she wants no part of being in the corral. Her heart does not want to be there, and you can see it in the way that she talks and thinks about being in the corral. That is not this. Salvation is not like broccoli, that God threatens you have to eat this, or I'm going to send you to your room or I'm going to blow all your college savings at the blackjack table at the new Encore Casino in Everett. So eat it. It is not gun to the head grace. It is not God dragging us unwilling into his kingdom. That is not this word. Irresistible grace is God in love for you and for me, moving on our unwilling hearts with such power and such conviction and such force, and such clarity, and making Jesus appear to us to be so beautiful, so true, so glorious, so magnificent, that our unwilling hearts change, and they become willing. Irresistible grace does not hook us from the outside and drag us. It changes us from the inside so that we long to step into the gospel life. So there's some better words for this. Maybe you like the word effectual grace or undeniable grace or win you over grace. This is what irresistible grace is. All right, now your Bible employs a whole bunch of metaphors to help you understand this. Sometimes it says it's like this, moving from dead to alive. Nicodemus met with Jesus and said, I don't understand how any of this works. And Jesus said, You must be born again. There needs to be a new birth, a new you, if you're ever going to see the kingdom of God for what it is. Sometimes the Bible says it's like heart surgery. Inside of us is a dead heart of stone, like a rock that does not beat for God. And the only way that grace works is that God cuts us open, puts us on the anesthesia, removes that heart of stone, sows in a heart of flesh, a new heart, that as soon as it begins to beat, it beats for Christ, a miracle of God's grace. Or it's like being blind and then having 2010 vision of the glory of Christ. It's like you can't see something and then you can see it and there's no going back once you have seen it. So we say it like this. Irresistible grace is the Spirit of God enabling us to see, finally to see, the glory of Christ for what it is. 
our illustration, and then we'll fire through these verses. I don't know how long ago it was, but a while ago, I took my daughter Julia for the first time to see a Celtics game. Somebody gave us tickets to a preseason game, and she had never been inside of the garden before, right? I'm old school with the Boston Garden. I watched the Bruins playoff game in 1985 from behind a pole. You know those poles in the old garden where you had to peer around just to actually see the ice? She had never been there before. So we go inside. We take that wicked long escalator up if you've been there before. Then we're in the regular hallway with the hot dogs and the popcorn. Then we walk into this tiny little hallway. It's, it's only about seven feet tall and the walls are closed. And we walk up to this big usher all dressed in black, and we show him our tickets. And he reads our tickets. And then the usher says, yeah, your seats are right down there, head right down. And he slides out of the way like this. And holding Julia's hand, we walk into the garden like this. And she froze. She stood there, and I backed away. I have pictures of behind her. Because she just stood looking at the glory of this arena for the first time, and she could not move. You know that experience? So 17 Celtics banners, right? <laughs> Boom. How many Bruins banners? I'm not a hockey guy. I don't know. Five, three? But there was Bruins banners up there. 19,000 seats, lights all the way up above. Then if your eyes can reach that far down is the parquet and the green barrier around it and the leprechaun at the center, she was seeing something she had never seen before, and it totally overwhelmed her. And her heart was changed toward that arena, toward the idea of going to see a game. She would love to go do that with you. It never, ever crossed her mind after that sight to say, hey, Dad, can we go back in that little hallway and stand behind that usher and spend the rest of the day there, never crossed her mind. Once she saw the glory of the arena, it was over. The reason that we have those experiences in life is so that you might know what it is like to become a Christian, to have the irresistible grace of God pressed on your soul. There's about 30 places in the Bible where this metaphor is pressed. I want you to see these verses with me and let them shape your Christmas. Here we go. These are from a letter written by an apostle, and he is defending and explaining the nature of his ministry. And these were the words that he said. I read these to you before. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. All right, so this is our philosophy of preaching at Seven Mile Road. Our aim is never to manipulate you as the hearer. We will never do that to you. We don't have smoke and lasers, and I'm not trying to put phrases together to move your emotions. We will never do that. Nor will we ever manipulate the message and try and make it more palatable for you and like edit out the hard stuff. We will not practice cunning. We will not tamper with God's word. Our aim is just to tell you like it is, to say it as clear in Bostonian vernacular as simply as we can say it to you, to take the truth of who God is, what he has done, what he requires, how he works, the glory of Christ, and to just put it before you as plainly as possible. That is always our aim. 
That's what a good church does every single week. But something very interesting, fascinating happens. Some people hear that and their hearts leap. Some people hear the open statement of the truth and it just pings off. And they're bored or they shrug their shoulders or they raise their fists. They don't fall to their knees in repentance and wonder at the open statement of the truth of the gospel. Why? Why? Why do we have this whole list of names of people who have been here one time, maybe filled out a connect card, heard the gospel, and then walked away like it was not a big deal? I was working with a woman, and we ended up talking about Jesus, and I was like, wow, is that an open door? And I said, hey, you want to read a book with me? It's called Who is Jesus? It's just kind of like an open statement of who Christ was. She said, yes, I couldn't believe it. So I bought her the book, and we were reading a chapter at a time and talking through it. And it was the weirdest experience because I was being floored, floored by what I was reading about what God has done for me in Christ. And she would sit with me and talk about it and shrug her shoulders and then go get lunch and teach her class. Why two such different responses? What is going on there? Well, here's what God says is going on there. If our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of those who don't believe to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. In other words, any of us who don't believe, what is going on here is that we can't believe. We can't see the glory of Christ just in our natural state. We just can't get there. There's an enemy trifecta of our souls, right? Our flesh, this world, and the God of this world. And all of them are working overtime constantly to keep us blind to who Jesus is. And we spend our whole lives standing in front of the usher, and that's all we want. We don't want to see what's beyond. We can't see what's beyond. Notice that he doesn't say has blinded our eyes. He says blinded our minds. In other words, this is a metaphor. Your will, your, you, your soul, your mind, you can't see Christ for who he is without God's grace stepping in to help you to see it. So what happens is blindness needs to be removed. The veil, you know what that is, like a curtain? It needs to be separated. The usher needs to be moved out of the way. We don't have the capacity to do this in ourselves, but God does. And that's why this verse of Scripture is here, and it is staggering. If you fall out of your seat, it's okay. You can just climb right back up and keep listening. God, the God who said, let light shine out of darkness, Here's what's happened. He has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Boom. In other words, in his grace, God gives us the capacity to finally see the glory of Christ. Once you have been given that light, you are never able to walk back into the hallway of this world. You can't do it. You've seen something 
that can never be unseen. Sin loses its appeal. All the garbage promises of this world lose their appeal. Porn loses its appeal. Money loses its appeal. The praise of men loses its appeal. The acceptance of your family loses its appeal. And you find yourself going, no, 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 no. I need Christ. What I have seen needs to be mine. You can take everything else, but I need that glory. This is why Christians speak the way we do, live the way we do, sing the way that we do. This is third day. Listen to these lyrics. Nothing compares to the greatness of knowing you, Lord. Who says those words? Someone who has come to see the glory of God for what it is in Christ. All right, Brooke from Hillsong. And if you don't like Hillsong, whatever. These are good words. You have no rival. You have no equal. Now and forever, God, you reign. Yours is the kingdom. Yours is the glory. Yours is the name above all names. Who sings that? It's someone who has come to see the glory of Christ with clear eyes. Dustin Kensrue, you better like him. We have seen your splendor and glory. We have seen your wonders and stand amazed. Every tongue will echo this story. Everyone will sing of your righteous ways. Who says that? Somebody who has come to see the glory of Christ with clear eyes. Andre Crouch, how can I say thanks for the things you have done for me? Things so undeserved, yet you came to give your love for me. The voices of a million angels could not express my gratitude. All that I am, all that I ever hope to be, I owe it all to you. Who says that? Someone who has come to see the glory of Christ with clear eyes. Here's Charles Wesley, and there's a couple of thous and these, but don't let it mess you up. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I stood, went forth, and followed thee. Who writes those words? Someone who has come to see the gospel of the glory of Christ for what it is. Or today we would say, someone on whom the irresistible grace of Jesus has landed. The Christmas story is filled with this. The shepherds came, they saw Christ, and what did they do? They ran telling everyone in that village, you've got to come see this child. The wise men came, and they saw the glory of Christ, and what did they do? They bore gifts, and they fell down in the sand, and they worshipped him. John the Baptist was still in utero 
when Mary came into the room with Jesus conceived, what, 10 minutes, three days, maybe three months, maybe? And John the Baptist in the presence of the glory of Christ in the Christmas story, the Macarena and every other one of those dances that you do, he did them all. He took the umbilical cord, he held it up to here, and he was like, da, 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 hey, Christ is in this room. The Spirit of God irresistibly moving on an unborn baby because he knew he was near Jesus. And this is what has happened in the soul of every single one of us who have ever come to say, Jesus is Lord. I need him. I want him. I'm in with him. Sometimes this, bra- sometimes this grace breaks through in a moment, right? Sometimes it happens that way. So for me, it was a Friday night, 1985, 1075, Revere Reach Parkway at a student ministry event. And the, the Charles Wesley light that he wrote about just flooded in my soul. Boom, there it was. I knew the facts about Jesus. I knew the, the details because I had good parents, but I had never seen Christ before. And I am telling you, on that stage, in that circle, as a 13-year-old kid, I saw the glory of Christ, and there's no going back from that. I have had people say to me, that's ridiculous. You were 13. You weren't even like halfway through puberty. How could you have an experience that would be so foundational? And all I can say is, have you seen the glory of Christ? Because if a seven-year-old sees it, they're in. If a 12-year-old sees it, they're in. If a 50-year-old who has built their life outside of Christ sees Christ, they will give 50 years away in a moment for Christ. Sometimes this happens in a second. Sometimes this grace breaks through in a season, right? Many of you, this has happened. You're like, I don't know what happened, but in July, I wasn't a Christian, and then in November, I was. And somewhere there in there, I saw the glory of God in the face of Christ. Many of you have told me, it was my sophomore year at high school, uh, sophomore year in college, or it was the summer of 2006. There was this season when I came to see Christ, and I'm never going back. For others, and I need you to hear this, for others, this sometimes takes years, years, which is why we never get discouraged, which is why the beginning of this text says, we do not lose heart. I don't know if you know who Charles Spurgeon is, but he was a great pastor in England in the 1800s. It was years of struggling with the truth of the gospel before the light came in. If you want to read something amazing, read John Bunyan's biography, Who Wrote the Pilgrim's Progress. This brother struggled with the truth of the gospel for years, like this, up and down. And then at the end of that road, somehow, over years of struggling, the light of the glory of Christ fused his soul, and he was never the same. I don't know if it's going to be a moment for you, a season for you, or years from you, but I can promise you this. This is what Christmas is about, putting before you the glory of Christ, the glory of Christ, the glory of Christ, until you see it, until you see it. For what it is. That's what Christmas is about. All right, let's end with these words before we step in to sing. There's another man who experienced the blinding glory of Christ in the most ironic possible way. 
So when we see Jesus, we finally see as we were meant to see. And it's ironic because he was traveling on a beast of some sort, horse, donkey, something, and Christ appeared to him in such blinding light that he was physically blinded. And in going physically blind, he came to spiritually see the glory of Christ. That would be worth it. It would be worth it for Christ to blind you physically for you to see the glory of Christ. There is more joy in the heart of a blind Christian than a non-Christian who's got 26 vision because you've seen the most glorious thing in the universe. This happened to Jesus' apostle Paul, and hear these words with me. This is what he came to write to Christians like us. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation. By him were all things created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and he holds all things together. He is the head of his body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything Christ might be preeminent. For in Christ all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. That is the glory of Christ. Will you pray with me that Seven Mile Road would see it? Let's do that together. Father, forgive us for being distracted by all this nonsense around Christmas. Forgive us for missing the center of all of this, which is the light of the knowledge of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Jesus, you humbled yourself to be born and laid in a manger. You lived a perfect life, one we could never have lived. Then you died the most brutal, undeserved, unjust death ever to atone for our sins. Then you rose in victory so that we might know that your victory is our victory. And then person by person, man by man, woman by woman, boy by boy, girl by girl, you visit us with irresistible grace. You allow us to see the glory of Christ. I pray that you would set our eyes and our affections and our sight on Jesus this morning, that we would be unmoved from his glory, and that the way that we sing the way that we give an open presence tomorrow, the way that we prepare our meals, the way that we listen to the radio, the way that we give gifts on Christmas morning, that it would all be done anchored to this. I have seen the glory of Christ. Would you hear my prayer for that and answer? I pray that you would do it. Amen. Amen. All right, thanks for listening to that.